You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds, and Brad Friedman from Our Sweet Mystery here, your murder mystery world tour. We are here in our second week discussing the Millhouse murders by Yukito Ayatsuji. It is the second book in the Mansion Murder series by the patron saint of the Shinhonkaku movement, and uh, we are talking chapters 6 to 11. Brad and Herds are the ones challenged with solving this book, and uh, before we get into any of the mystery shenanigans, today i want to know what you thought of the silliest scene in this entire book now i have to ask are you talking about the scene where we we drop an old man out of a wheelchair is it i am talking (laughs) about the scene where we drop an old man out of the wheelchair it was very silly are you talking about when he when he trips him yes you know i didn't think it was a silly scene i thought it had an important moment in it look i i agree with you that there is there is a clue there there is a moment there and i like that the other characters that aren't shimada are also picking up on the mystery i think that's really cool but also, if you're a detective and you're like, I need to figure out the truth. I need to treat the crime with respect and like figure figure people out. Why is your first instinct to flip someone out of a wheelchair? I just feel like it's very rude. I thought at first that Shimada had done it on purpose to see, I guess, if he would leap up and go, what did you do that for? I forgot. I can't walk. I, I, that wasn't it, I don't think. It gave Mitamura a clue, though, it seems like. So, oh, yes. Yeah. yes that's oh, yes. I think think Shimada got what he wanted out of that, personally. But, no, I thought that was a very silly scene. I agree, and I'm excited to see what else Shimada does while he's playing the ghost of the house, because that seems to be a thing that he does now. He's He's like, let me leave spooky letters and make noises in the walls, presumably, and push people out of wheelchairs. That's like his thing. Yeah, I mean that's kind of that's kind of the best thing here, right? Is that there's this implication that Kojin is still haunting yeah. the house. That mm-hmm, other mm-hmm. man, the missing that man, we keep yes, talking about. Yeah, we hear a creaking sound, and it's like, is that a is that a ghost? Is that someone in a mysterious piece of machinery deep inside the house? I think the other thing that's interesting is we get a lot more about the sort of rest of the cast and what their actual connection to the case is this time yes find out why these three in particular well, these four are invited the connection they've had to the family the art critics father i think discovered is a sort of kind of but the one we really see a lot more of is mitamura he starts to come across as a real creep a real villain he's very slimy and sly he seems to have <laughs> s- secret motivations for things he also has a moment with Yurie where he's sort of seductive that Kichi listens in on. So, I mean, he's playing some kind of game. Compared to Oishi, who, you know, used to handle Issei's paintings, and Mori, who is the son of the historian you mentioned, Brad, who made him famous. Mitamura, his father, was the one who treated Kichi and Masaki after their car crash. He doesn't have like the same vector of connection as the others do. Do you think you think there's anything going on with that? I can see his father on his deathbed saying, I have some medical secrets to share with you, my son. <laughs> <laughs> he may know some stuff. There's a moment in the past when Masaki says to Metamora, you know why I don't paint anymore. And so the question has been, you know, is this a physical thing or is this an emotional thing? And Mitamura isn't a person that Masaki is known to confide in. So I assume it's something medical. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Somebody comments, they're like, you don't seem to have been injured at all. And he says, oh, do I seem like I haven't been? How strange. Like, 
clearly he's injured in some way that we just can't see, which kind of ties into the theme of of bodies being broken. And I think that the eventual fate of Kichi is also going to tie into that idea of like being like just having your body and soul being broken. All of those characters are, are like scummy. Oishi, I think, is just more open about it. I think it's Mori is speaking with Oishi at one point and is talking about how he's saying on the outside, oh, Oishi, you lovely chap. But then on the inside, he's like, I loathe. I loathe Oishi. He's the scum of the earth. And oh, I, I hate that Kojin. He doesn't express his true feelings. What a pathetic man. Like all of these characters in this house uh, who, who lust for this painting are like scummy and just awful people. Well, the one I'm so confused about is Yurie. She's like Samara in the ring. She's so <laughs> drippy. She's in this state of perpetual sorrow, like a rag doll. There's something up with this woman. There's a part of it that I think I know, but it doesn't make sense when you come to the present. So that's where I'm a little confused. Yeah, th- there's something kind of like, I think intentionally gross about the way that Yurie is portrayed, where her agency is taken from her, but we never see it being taken from her. It was like removed in the past. Right. And what removed it? She wasn't in that car. So what is going on with her? And it, it has something to do, I mean, with her father and all of this. I think she just never had the chance to to have agency in the first place. I feel like that's the implication. Yeah, she was like a kid. She was 11 or so. And she's lived there for what, a dozen years. Um, so she's a grown-up now. But, I mean, I have a theory about some of this, which we'll get into. And it seems like she should be not quite so gloomy because of my theory. And that's why I'm a little confused. As far as I could tell, her like character arc is about moving away from, because like all the characters are talking about how she's sheltered and how she's becoming a beautiful woman and how she's like gaining her agency. And obviously a year ago, she was almost certainly helping Masaki commit his crimes, even if she didn't actually like kill anyone herself. Even if she thought that she'd be happy with Masaki then, she's still kind of living in the same existence that she was a year ago, right? I feel like her arc has to be about, like, self-determination, right? It has to be about her, like, figuring out that she can be more than the sad lady who stalks around the house and plays the piano every now and then. I feel like it has to be her, like, uncovering some level of agency by the end of the book. I don't necessarily think that's going to be, like, fingering the culprit, but maybe she just goes goes away to i don't know america let's let's say i don't know i suppose the other thing that i wanted to talk about is shimada this week because this is kind of the week where we really get into his detective shenanigans you know he starts he starts chapter 11 talking about one of the locked rooms by going oh well yeah this situation sure would be good for hm or dr fell although ross and merlini might be better suited to a disappearance like this you know, he is the the metatextual detective through and through. But it's also interesting because he's like solving a crime that hasn't really happened in his presence. He is just doing it through other people's accounts of the events. He's being an archaeologist, right? The thing is that the narrator, Kichi, but not Kichi, is saying, I had already guessed that Shimada was also a great fan of mystery fiction. <laughs> but some of the others seem puzzled by the unfamiliar names. Um, Mori doesn't know anything about it. Oishi doesn't know anything about it. They only th- care about their own stuff. Mitamura has a kind of a look. He has a lot of looks in this book. And here's another one of his kind of, uh-huh, Shimada. So Mitamura knows something about this. Um, evidently, at least two of the three did not belong to their 
University Murder Club, but uh, it looks like Masaki did. So I'm uh, uh, he knows about Locked Room Mystery. I, I don't know whether Yukuda Ayatsuji was still at the Kyoto University Mystery Club when he wrote this book or not, um, but he was for the Decagon House Murders. And he's he's dotted his characters so thoroughly with knowledge of the genre and like clearly has particular people who know particular things about the genre, which is really fun in the story. Like one of my favorite scenes is when we walk into the room that's been filled with all of this incense and you sort of get the vibe that Mitamura is like, I see what's going on here. He's almost thinking like, what is the mystery purpose of all of this incense being in the room where everyone else is just like, well, it sure is weird there's <laughs> incense here. And the incense is very important, I think. Can we just mention is Kojin real quick? Because he's not really what I was expecting, and I'm not sure how anyone could convince themselves that he is a murderer. Because, I mean, he has no money. He's just a he's, sad, decrepit- He's a PCR's kid who loves the spirits and just wants to- be at home, just wants to stay home and play video games. Let's be real. He's like um, he's like a, a human spindly well, like, ghost. He's the person you spent Friday night with. Come on, admit it. Listen, don't don't call us out like that, Brad. I was gonna say I, sp- I spent my Friday nights with Flex, so I don't know what you're what you're on about. Uh, well, there you go, there you go. If I was gonna pick any character that I felt each of you was like Flex, you're uh, Kojin. <laughs> Terrible. Is does that mean who, who's herds then? Oh come on, I'm a Weishi. Let's go, let's go. I'm the gross, I'm the gross guy. It's like ah, that's where I get all the money and all the paintings. Money is no object. I've got like rings on my fingers. Look, let's go. <laughs> I would like to say I'm Shimada, but I think I'm Fumie, the uh, Fumi, however you say her name, the one who went flying <laughs> out the window. You're already dead. That's terrible. <laughs> I hope you boys are dressed up before you go oh, out tonight. God. So that's horrendous. Anyway, all right. <laughs> You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing the Millhouse murders by Yukito Ayatsuji, chapters 6 to 11. We'll be back to talk about the mystery at the end of the show, so stick around for that. You're on to SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. It's been a good few years since we covered Robert Gott's Good Murder on the show, and he's put out two entire series since that book's publication. With his latest political satire, the Who Did What? Naked Ambition, recently out, I'm delighted to say, Robert, welcome back to Death of the Reader. It's been too long. I I remember quite fondly and often regale at book festivals opening my first interview with you with Robert, I do not like your book, convince me why I should. And it was such good sport and I have gone on to be such a fan that it is a disgrace that this is the first time we're getting to your work again. I was just supremely indifferent how you responded to it. (laughs) Well, at least now we can count Flex among among the fans. Uh, yes, I'm grateful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially as that was my very first novel. So there mm. were things in it that were sloppy and, and very first novelish. There, there was room for improvement. Uh, speaking sure of was. sloppy, uh, so, <laughs> oh. Robert, at, at the center of your book <laughs> is a nude portrait of our so-called protagonist, Gregory Buchanan, and it famously... Yeah overwhelms its audience with the sight of his knob. What inspired you to balance the entire intricacy of the plot on the end of Greg's member? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> I, am I, I mean, I have asked this question before, but am I the only person who, when he looks at a politician's, imagines that person nude? 
Am I the only person? I, um, I can't imagine you're the only one, but <laughs> I haven't the done only it, one in the room, maybe. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> maybe I'm the only one who says it out loud. And that's really brave of you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I just thought it was a, a, a comic idea that you'd have someone who was so vain that he'd think that being painted nude, full frontal, photorealist, larger than life, was a good idea. I think it speaks to the vanity and stupidity of most politicians who are essentially solipsistic, aren't they? You wouldn't be a politician unless your ego was the size of a rainforest. Well, part of the uh, analysis of the portrait that I really enjoyed is that, of course, <laughs> Gregory, he thinks that it is a, a beautiful portrait of himself. Yeah. But the other characters, they, they keep saying, you know, it, it makes you seem a little bit a little bit awful, doesn't it? You seem a bit cruel, a bit ambitious. And he says, no, 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 no. That's just, that's just my, uh, my regal posing and my my cunning gaze and yes i look so assertive yeah yes, assertive right. <laughs> and there's a fine line between assertive and aggressive indeed i think one of the characters says uh, assertiveness is just aggression with its hair combed and its tie straightened although he's not wearing a tie no he's not he's very much not wearing a tie <laughs> he's not even that far <laughs> the trouble yeah. with the portrait is that the way it's painted the the uh, cock is absolutely at <laughs> eye height so it takes a while for anyone looking at it to get to the face because you get snagged halfway up. But once you get to the face, then you realise, or at least his wife suddenly realises, that the artist has seen something in his face that she's never seen before, but perhaps suspected, which is that he has a side to him that's venal and proud and ambitious and narcissistic. There was something very funny to me about the idea that Phoebe, Gregory's wife, is a PR manager and the just fictionally perfect pairing of a politician and <laughs> PR person in marriage. Yeah, yes, indeed. But he, he, the only time he's ever drawn on her expertise is when he grew a moustache. And uh, she said, no, absolutely not. I guess going into the politics side of things, this is in some ways a pretty big departure from the William Power fiasco series and the Holiday Murder series, which yeah. Riley dealt with gender politics and leadership, but in a very different manner to the way that you deal with them in just this much more open satire that's much more engaged with the politics. It's like the two key tenets of the other series smushed together in a way that doesn't seem like it would quite work. How did it feel putting those together after keeping those concepts so separate for so long? Uh, look, it felt marvellous because although there's, there, there are pleasures to be had in finding ways to kill people, there's just enormous pleasure to also be had to sit down and just write an out and out what is essentially an old-fashioned drawing room comedy. It reads like a play. It could be a play. It's set basically in one room. It's opened out a little bit, but not very much. So I just wanted to create a book that was very much dialogue-driven and keep the characters all together in one place and then to draw on the crime part of my work I had a crime committed inside the room. So it becomes a kind of a locked room mystery where the crime that's committed could have been committed by any one of the characters in the book. I do quite like the insinuation that with the with the living room murder structure <laughs> that because we are in this environment where most of the novel takes place in one setting, that the crime also cannot take place outside that setting. Like, That's right. It's true. You know, we're, we're bounded by a fictional constraint that the book doesn't ever deal with explicitly, but is obvious in a way that makes it that much funnier. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It was a, it was a great th fun to do. 
And I, I uh, shamefully just made myself laugh. Oh no! Oh, no. How dare you know, laugh at your own joke? <laughs> I know you should. You should never. You should never admit to that. No, well, it is a very funny book. Oh, thank you, thank you. It was just a great pleasure to sit down and and, and write it. Well, you you mentioned that uh, you you wrote it as a as a play almost, and we were, we were just going to say yeah. there's quite a few details. Um, beyond the fact that it could it, it could be put on as a stage play, I almost wonder if that was your intent to begin with. It was like ah, there you go. Because there's <laughs> there's you know the limited cast, the limited locations. There's even a moment where one of the characters comments that when they they leave the living room to go to a different room and they come back and all the characters are still in the same place. They don't seem to have moved at all. It's almost <laughs> as though they froze in time while he was. He was he was missing. It's yeah, very yeah. it's very bizarre in a way that you know lends the absurdity. <laughs> I guess what what led led you to to kind of writing this like a, a stage production? Why that inspiration? Well, because originally years and years and years ago, in a, in a very inchoate way, it began as a play. Then I thought, well, I can actually expand this without opening it out. One of the things I do find annoying in the cinema, for example, is when I've been to see a play that I love, then you go and see the film version of the play, and they f*** it up because they feel like they've got to open it out. You've got to put people outside, put them in streets, take them out of the play and find new places to put them as if the audience is incapable of being engaged if they're just in one place. It's always more interesting doing it with a book too because you don't have to deal with the filmmaking budgetary constraint. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Is there a plan to have this on a stage that, that we should be keeping an eye out for, Robert? Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> um, I await a theatre company to read the book and say, write us the script. Well, And the thing about the play- The it- challenge is open. <laughs> It's very important that that portrait, when it's on stage, is never seen by the audience. Well, oh, can I tell you, this is, I'm, I'm sorry to just completely <laughs> derail us, but I was thinking no. about that because I, I love the idea that it's never seen. I was thinking that when you had it on screen, either it's like facing away from the audience, it's like, you know, facing the wall, or yep. it's facing the audience, but you hang like a like a sock or something in the center of the painting <laughs> to keep it decent. And so whatever the characters are like, it's quite imposing, isn't it? They can like lift up the sock and look underneath. I would really is, enjoy it that. It is really quite spectacular the way that you've dealt with space in that every character arrives on the scene and has to be wheeled around to be like yes. have the portrait presented to presented, them. Presented, yeah. Yeah, because even in the book, it's kind of off stage. Mm. And I, I, I think if it were, if it were ever on stage, it would be much better if the audience built their own vision of what that uh, portrait was rather than have it staring them in the face. But, uh, you know, I think there are three lessons to take away from this book. And one of them is if you're having your, if you're ever having a nude portrait done and there's nothing wrong with having a nude portrait done, don't ever have your face and your genitals in the same portrait. No one's going to look at your face. And the second one, I think it's Margaret in the book who says there are no votes in the scrotum and no one's going to vote for a politician whose genitals they can Google. And I think that's mm. a great truth. Makes sense to me. Would you? I, I, mean, I mean, it remains yeah, to be seen if Dwayne The Rock Johnson gets elected. That's, that's all I'm saying. Well- 
Robert, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It has been a treat reading through Naked Ambition and a, just a joy returning to your work. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's been a treat at this end too. It's been far too long. I agree. I agree. Thank you to Scribe Publishing for sending us a copy of Naked Ambition. We will have links up on the podcast to the book if you want to find out more about it. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SCR 107.3 and we'll be back with more in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds, here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are joined still by Brad Friedman from Our Sweet Mystery, one of the internet's finest blogs on mystery fiction, and he's he's chuckling away in the background as I say this, but Brad, I mean, come on. I, I go to every blog in the murder mystery blogosphere, and there's yours right <laughs> at the top. I'm sure it has nothing to do with the alphabet. Right. It's going to be <laughs> ah, sweet mystery with just A, 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 but um, I felt that was unfair, so I just did ah. We are talking The Millhouse Murders by Yukuda Ayatsuji, chapters 6 to 11, and just before we left off, Brad, you had mentioned that you thought the scene where we walked into an incense-filled Uh-oh. bathroom was an important clue, and I'm curious... What do you think that clue is? Well, why do you uh, light incense? I suppose he could have lit a little incense for a religious experience, but this was a lot of incense. A, a lot of incense, this yes. Was, this was like they were wiping the smoke from there, from the in front of them. It was that much incense. So you do that to cover up a smell. Oh, do you, oh, you see, I I had a different inclination. I was thinking that here here it was making it obvious that Kojin was searching for a hidden mm. passage and trying to use smoke to find the entrance, but he couldn't, so it had stuffed up the room. That's too big brain for me. Good grief. Yeah, Good grief. I would have never, what an interesting th- theory. I just thought they're trying to cover it up. Because here's the thing. There were two people missing, Masaki and Kojin, right? Only, I think, Herz and I flopped on it, like on page, cast of characters, or maybe mm-hmm. to cover that Kichi is Misaki, all right? So that means that Kichi's missing, right? So we've got two guys missing. And when we started reading, I'm like, well, Misaki killed Kichi, cut him up and put him in the incinerator at the end. So I don't know. That may still be so. But we do have this big chunk of time between the last time we saw Kojin and the time they realize he's missing. And there's all this smoke in mm-hmm. the room covering up a smell. So I'm going to say that it was Kojin who was killed and not Kichi. They say that Kojin went upstairs and then he never came back down, but he's not up there anymore. And then after about three pages of that, they say, well, maybe Miramura and Mori, maybe we were playing chess so deeply that we didn't notice him. And Mm -hmm. if that's true, then why is Pushkin Vertigo publishing this (laughs) locked room mystery without a locked room? That's too easy. You That can't be true. He had to go upstairs and then disappear. And how yeah. could he do that? It's via the secret passage he didn't find, obviously. Secret passage he didn't find. But see, if he if there was a secret passage up there, then the smoke would have gone through the wall, right? Exactly. So there cannot be a secret passage. And they said the windows open, they're so small that you can't fit a full human body through those windows. Interesting that you say a full human body there, Brad. Why would they cut up the body into six pieces? I mean, out of vengeance, out of anger, to get it to cook faster, possibly, but also (laughs) maybe to get it out the window. 
Because the last thing we read before the end is Masaki saying, oh, 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 I think I see Kojin running outside. I'm going to go outside and find him. Of course, he's going to find him. He's going to pick him up in pieces, <laughs> and he's going to take him down to the incinerator and burn him up. And that's what I think he did. Because who's upstairs with Kojin? The only person upstairs with Kojin is Masaki. They're side by side in rooms. So Masaki's up there. And what's he doing? He's cutting up this guy and he's pushing him through the window. And then... It probably smells bad, all that coppery blood. And mm -hmm. so it's got to light like 400 sticks of incense to cover up the smell of blood. I noticed as I was looking through the book that the, the concept of smell is brought up very rarely. It is brought up for the incense and it is brought up for the incinerator and when they're finding the body. So clearly the idea of, of something smelly being associated with death is like a strong thing in the book. The other detail I want to highlight is that there are when when we ask Kiichi and the president what's out that window, he says, "Oh, just a bunch of shrubs." So he literally cut up the man's body and chucked him in the bushes. <laughs> literally hit him in the bushes. Well, but I mean, surely <laughs> Mitamura, Mori, and Genzo would have heard a full human torso falling. It was from storming. Story it was storming. You shut your mouth. They're storming, and, and the two guys are playing chess. Yeah, they're, they're thinking deeply. Chess, famously one of the loudest games yeah, the in the world. Yeah, the pieces. Yes, it is, you know? Look, it was storming at the time, and also, Maury, I'm going to count this as a clue, Maury pings on it in the present and says, oh, about that theory that you had, Shimada, when Shimada's, like, checking out the window, but the power goes out before Maury can finish their thought. Yeah, he's, like, looking out the grey curtains. Isn't Maury wearing hearing aids? Yes, attached to their glasses. I believe so. Yeah, he's wearing hearing aids. He can't hear. And if Mitamura hears, he's probably going, this is how I can get the final painting. I know all of this. I will have Yurie in my bed and I will have oh, the painting no. in my arms. <laughs> I will have Yurie in my arms and the painting yeah. in my bed. But one, one but, you know, I know the so much. The bed. I think that's correct. So maybe he heard it. I don't, he might have heard yeah. it. No, I agree with that. So you've said that Hojin is the one that has been murdered now, which means that we have an inexplicable lack of Kichi. We have a lack of Kichi. We have another locked room to contend with. Another locked room? What we other we, locked room? Shut, shut your mouth. It's the study. So here's the thing. We, we talked about last week, again, that there was a smell in the basement. I want to say in the turbine room that the housekeeper keeps smelling. And I know, Brad, that you think this is impossible and you're going to hate this, but I reckon that smell, again, is the smell of death. This is in the present. And it is the smell of Kichi rotting probably in the walls of the, of the turbine room or like under the floors or something. And the clue here, the smoking gun here is the red brick fireplace purely because... It is the only feature of the study that is of any note. I think that there's like a tunnel or an elevator or something. Brad, you were talking about machinery earlier. Maybe there's like a machine in the fireplace that like carries you down, something like that. Oh my God. That's just, just like, <laughs> take the body. <laughs> that sounds right to me. And I think that, yeah, I think that Kichi's like plan in the past was when he realized that everyone was there to steal his painting. He was like, I'll just go down into the secret passage and like hide out there for a while. And then, I don't know, maybe he ended up there without his wheelchair or maybe he fell out of it and he just got stuck down there on his own because he couldn't trust anybody else to, to look after him and his precious painting. Because why can we not show anyone the painting? You don't think it shows anything incriminating? That's a good question, actually. I'm not sure what's on the painting. Clearly, it is something that Kiji would die for but it was painted before his accident, right? So it can't be like, maybe it is just his old face. I guess the other thing I wanted to ask about though, 
before I, I grill you on your last pointsworthiness mm-hmm. things is the letter. You guys said it was Shimada who'd left the letter. It's got to be Shimada, right? Brad, do you think it's one of the other guests? Do you think it's... I don't think it's Shimada. It doesn't make any sense for it to be Shimada. Why would he want to leave the house? Just to like spook out the, the culprit. But maybe you you were thinking it might have been Mitamura, right? That seemed to be what you were leaning on earlier. Well, I'm th- I was thinking if it was one of the guests, because they figured if he left, they could search for the painting. Well, the other thing is, is that Shimada seems surprised when there's mention that Kichi in the present day didn't see the letter. I don't know. Is it his eyesight? Is that, <laughs> is it his eyesight? Is that where we're going with this? No. What do you think, Brad? His eyesight. Sees a letter as a stain on the carpet. Then it's like a color. It's a color. It's a color thing then, right? Yeah. It's a stain on the red carpet. Oh my right. God. Oh my God. The green carpet. Yes. The red carpet. Oh, shoot. It's got 1934 a- colorblind. Shoot. He's colorblind. Oh, and you know what? They talk about the difference in his painting style from his master. He paints all these kind of naturalistic stuff and he paints mm-hmm. colors. I just want to say, I think you've both done a wonderful job with this very challenging mystery novel. And next week on the show, we will the be man, back. The man is making fun of all us. All the way to the end of the Millhouse Murders by Yukuto Ayatsuji, the second novel in the Mansion Murder series. With the first in our hearts. I just want to let you know that Professor Satomi Saito, who we spoke to about the Decagon Murders last time we covered Yukuto Ayatsuji on the show, said that the following novel in the Mansion Murder series, The Labyrinth Murders, is the hardest one in the series. So take that as you will. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour. Here on 2SER 107.3, we'll be back with more Yukuda Ayatsuji next week on the show. Stick around. Sounds and ideas for Sydney on 2SER 107.3. Final thought, it's a painting of the labyrinth murders. Done. Seal it away.